0: If you would take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 4, we're going to continue through the book of Romans today, Romans 4 verses 13 through 17 is where we are today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are these black Bibles that are on the end of every pew and on that Bible should be on page 941 and uh, just leaking just a little bit onto page 942 at the end of what we're going to read today. Uh, let's read that together, Romans four, thirteen through 17. and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. There's a big difference between rules and promises. If you have kids then maybe you've done what I did just a couple of months ago and you've taken your kids to a pool party. At the pool party, there's a rule that you may not run beside the pool. And that tends to be the number one reason why the whistles get blown by those lifeguards as there's running by the pool. But there's also a promise at the birthday party by the pool, which is that there's gonna be pizza and cake at the end. There's a difference between the rule and the promise. The rule says you may not do this, but the promise is in a totally different category. The cake is coming. Or maybe you've been to Disney World. It's not quite my thing, but I know a lot of people like it. Um, I, I understand that there's, there tends to be a rule at these parks where there are rides that you're not supposed to cut the line. Uh, but whether or not you're a line cutter, at the end of the day, there's a promise that there is going to be a fireworks show. Or maybe, uh, maybe you've had your kids home for Christmas break and you've had to make some rules because things are different when you've got your kids home all day as opposed uh, to being occupied with school. Well, uh, maybe there's a rule that says uh, don't spend all day on your screens. But then there's also the promise coming. There's going to be presents under the tree. Or maybe you follow through. If they disobey, it's just going to be coal. But honestly, I don't know any parents who do that. I really don't. There's the rules and then there's the promises and they're in totally different categories and that's what this is about. That as we come to God, that there is the law that is real, it is good, it is true, it is the law of God. But the law and the promise are in two different categories. The law brings wrath and the promise is in in grace. The promise brings life, and this comes to us, as applied to us by faith in Jesus Christ and not by something that we could do by way of our obedience, by our adherence to the law. Some of you are saying to yourself, well, this sounds an awful lot like the last two or three sermons. Yeah, that's right. So let's keep talking about the gospel because the Bible keeps talking about the gospel. So we have here. The promise to Abraham, where we are in chapter 4, is that that there has been a presentation of the gospel already. Uh, The gospel has been laid out just in very, very clear, straightforward terms, especially in the second half of chapter 3. And now there is this example that's been given to us throughout chapter 4 so far that, look, this has always been God's good news, even in the Old Testament. Jesus has come and accomplished the gospel, but it's the same gospel that it's always been, which is that you need to be counted as righteous before God by faith and not by works of the law. So there was the example of Abraham, who he quoted Genesis 15:6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There was the example of David, who said, Blessed are those who law, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And he's going on and he's showing this is how God operates. We are not overturning how God has saved people in the Old Testament to replace it with something new. We're saying this is how God has always saved people. It has always been through the promise received by faith. It has always been a gift of God's grace and not something that is done by the law, even though the law is good and is actually the law of God. It says in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith. Heirs of the world, heirs of the world. How did this promise come to Abraham and to his offspring? Well, it came by faith. But I want us to think, first of all, what is he talking about? What is the promise? What is it that came to Abraham? He says in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring. It's not just a promise to one guy, but to one guy and to his offspring for generations and generations to come. And the promise, it says, is that they would be heir of the world to Abraham and his offspring. Well, the the way that promise is put in the Old Testament back in Genesis 12, I'll just tell you what was the promise to Abraham. It says this in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then a few verses later, in Genesis twelve seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there's usually recognized to be three aspects of the promise that God gave to Abraham and to his offspring. That's offspring, land, and blessing. He said, Offspring, I will make you a great nation. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is land to your offspring I will give this land. And there is blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of those things are fulfilled in sort of shadowy ways throughout the Old Testament. In in temporal ways. In ways that could be seen here on earth with the eyes. You've got the offspring where, yes, Abraham ended up actually having this child with Sarah in his old age, whose name was Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had his sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and God multiplied them even while they were in slavery in Egypt, and God brought them out, and God made them a great nation in terms of physical offspring. But this is something that was going to point to a greater promise. That offspring points, it says in Galatians 3.16, primarily to one person whose name is Jesus Christ. He says in Galatians 3.16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Here is what the Bible says. It says, yes, there was the temporal blessing of many, many children in the nation of Israel who were called Abraham's offspring, but the, there was one out of all of them who it was all about all along, and his name is Jesus. He is the offspring of Abraham, and it is by faith in Jesus As he said back in the verses just before where we are in Romans 4, it is by faith in Jesus that we ourselves become Abraham's offspring as well. We need to be united to Jesus. We need to be clothed in Christ. We need to be one with Christ, brought into brotherhood with Christ. We need to have faith in the offspring, the promised one, and we are brought in and we are part of the offspring of Of Abraham a great multitude not just from that nation but from every tribe and tongue and nation who comes in through the singular offspring whose name is Christ and so that offspring who in that temporal sense in the Old Testament it points to something eternal it points to something permanent which is Jesus and those who are united to Jesus by faith as it says in Galatians 4 28 you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. Wow, amazing. So there was offspring, it was part of the blessing, there's land that's part of the blessing, or part of of the promise. That land, well, obviously there was the land, the plot of land, in what we call modern day Israel now, or I guess back then it was called Israel, right? Well, it was the land of Canaan in, in Abram's time. But, is that what is the ultimate point? Is the ultimate point that plot of land? Well, some people still think so. Some Christians still think so. But here's, here's what it says in Hebrews 11 about Abraham. It says, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You hear that? Hebrews 11, and it's not just Hebrews 11, other places in the New Testament also, they show, yeah, that was a temporal thing that plot of land in the Middle East. And that is something that was given as the people came in from their journeys in the wilderness, out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. Yes, they were given that, but it was a shadow pointing to the substance that's casting the shadow, which is Christ. And what Christ would bring in a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Or as it's put in Hebrews eleven sixteen, as it is, they desire a better country. He's talking about these Old Testament saints who died without having received the promises. He says they desire a better country than that physical plot of land. That is a heavenly one, it says. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, yeah, you know, we, I got to say, I, I went to this, uh, this meeting a couple of years ago that was, uh, I thought it was going to be the kind of thing where we, Christian pastors get together and talk about how to share the gospel with Jewish people. And I thought that's what it was going to be, but it turned out to be a meeting where, where we came together and we had a bunch of Christian pastors in the room and, and we had a bunch of rabbis in the room. And uh, and I thought this is great. We're going to get to share the gospel with all these rabbis. But then no, we had a speaker who came up and spent an hour telling us about the geopolitics of the Middle East and the Iron Dome of Israel and what's going on with the Prime Minister and this and that and how we can support uh, the nation of Israel politically. And I thought, you know what? Personally, politically, I'm on board with everything this guy just said. But is that our mission? Is our mission about protecting a particular plot of land geopolitically? When we come to the New Testament, we see we have a better country. We have a better country. We we don't want to just say, well, okay, that, that plot of land is worth protecting. We want to bring the gospel there. And we want to bring the gospel to all the plots of land because our hearts need to be set, according to the Scriptures, on a better country, a heavenly one, not to be Uh, overly preoccupied with the the shadows, the temporal things, but to set our hearts on the heavenly things. Here's what's coming for us, guys. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Guys, we have something better than a plot of land in this present world to look forward to. We have the actual, real new heaven and new earth and the city of New Jerusalem that we really will live in, in resurrected bodies, in the presence of the resurrected Christ forever and ever. So yes, the land promise is coming, really, but better, better than the temporal way that it came in the Old Testament. And then it's not just offspring, it's not just land, but there are blessings that come together with this. And those blessings throughout the Old Testament came in temporal forms. And sometimes they were bigger, and sometimes they were smaller. And that usually correlated to the general obedience of the nation of Israel to the laws of God when they would forget God and turn away to other gods and try to hedge their bets by saying, yes, we'll worship this God, but we're also going to worship this fertility God and this sea God and this sky God and this one and this one. God would, would turn and, and let them be overtaken by enemies. They would be ransacked. Their prosperity would wane. And then they would turn back to the Lord and their prosperity would come back. And they'd be built back up as a kingdom. Sometimes they would have great wealth and great power and great victories in battle and sometimes they wouldn't. It would come and it would go. But you know what? We have a blessing that is so much better than temporal blessings. We have something for us that is so much better than all of the gold that Solomon had or all of the lands that David led Israel to claim In his battles, we have something so much better than the blessing of an extended life that Hezekiah got when he was sick on his bed that he thought was going to be his deathbed. We have so much better than the health and wealth and prosperity of this temporal world. Here's what it says that we have as a blessing in Christ in Ephesians 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is something where we have in Jesus something that's a better and bigger reality than just here and now, health and wealth, prosperity kind of stuff. God gave those things to Old Testament Israel as a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard of that. Uh, it's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, of 1972, where these scientists put kids in a room with a camera, and they would come in and say, Here's a marshmallow. If you want to, you can eat this marshmallow right now. But if you wait till I come back, I'm going to bring you another one. And so if you wait till I come back, you'll get to have two marshmallows. So they'd have a camera on these kids. Of course, some of the kids, as soon as the scientists left the room, they'd just pop it in their mouth. It's like, I'm not waiting. I've got a marshmallow. Some of them would wait around for a while. They'd start to tap their foot. They'd get anxious. They'd look at it in different ways. They'd smell it. And then, you know, after five or six minutes, they might decide, that guy's never coming back. And they'd just eat the marshmallow. And then there was other kids who waited it out. They sat there. They restrained themselves. They said, he said he's going to bring it. He's going to bring it. And they waited, and guess what? They got a second marshmallow. They got something better. Now, the way that the world looks at that experiment and applies it and all the things that came out of that, uh, we can just kind of toss that in the bin right now. But we need to know that there is, for us, something better that is coming. Christian, you need to get out of your head... The worldly idea that keeps on creeping back into your head, I know it does because that's the desires of the flesh, that's the old self, it's the old way of thinking, the, the, the idea that creeps into your head that eternal blessings are not real blessings. I don't know if you've ever thought that way or not. This, this idea that things in heaven are not real things, like that if you're going to put your hope in heaven, that you're putting your hope in pretend things, instead of the real things that are the here and now. Do you know how long eternity is compared to this life? Think of that. Think of one grain of sand on the seashore in comparison with the entire beach. And not just that one, but all the beaches of the world. You know? Think of how high you can jump compared to how far it is from here to Saturn. If we think to ourselves, well the things in this life are the real things and the things in eternity, well those are just those aren't real. You don't get it. Here's what Jesus says. He he says in Matthew 6:19 through 21, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal." But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what it looks like. When it says, I want to take us back, I don't want to get too far off from the text that we're in, Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's the way that it interprets that, with the land and the offspring and the blessing. He puts that all together, and he says, Heir of the world, and he's saying, Look at what it says, and consider the implications, not just the temporal things, but look to the eternal things. Guys, we need to set our minds and our hearts on those heavenly promises, that treasure that is stored up for us in heaven and that treasure that's not just in heaven in the sense of, of, of the state between when you die and when Jesus returns, but even the eternal thing after you are raised from the dead in, this, in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet that you will have physically <laughs> to be in the presence of Christ to, to, as it says, to be an heir of the world. We have everything in Jesus And the Lord is our portion. And that is so much more real than anything that you can reach out and touch around you right now. You can reach out behind you and knock on the pew that you're sitting in. And I want to tell you that the heavenly blessings, the eternal spiritual blessings in Christ are much more real than that piece of wood that you're sitting on. We need treasure in heaven, but how does it come? Well, it comes through faith. It comes through faith and not through the law. Look at the second half of verse 13. The offspring would be the heir of the world. This promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He's setting us up here to see we need eternal life. We need the blessing. We need the eternal blessing. By the way, the alternative to what I just talked about is hell. Hell. That's the alternative that we earn for ourselves. So, how, how do we escape from what we deserve, which is an eternity in hell for our law breaking, and have the eternal blessings in Christ? Well, is it by law keeping? No, it is by faith. Remember what I told you just a minute ago? That there's, there are two different categories there is the law on the one hand, there's the rules. And then there's the promise on the other hand. They're just not the same thing. If somebody comes to you and says, I promise, but then follows up with, if you do all the right things, that's not a promise. That's a wage. That's not a gift. But he says here, here's how it comes. It it comes not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It sounds weird in a way. That phrase, the righteousness of faith, well, to look at somebody and say, well, they believe this, and so they must be right. Well, that sounds awfully strange, doesn't it? it sounds strange to us because the only measure that we have in, in this life of is a person righteous or not, are they, are they a good person, some, it has to be some kind of standard of rules. It has to be some kind of standard of laws. How, how else can you tell who is just? How, how else can you tell who is or is not a lawbreaker? But this says God has a different system. It's just a different operating system. You need to be brought out of the system of law that we were under. And you need to be brought into the system of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When we have faith in Jesus, it says that we have the righteousness of faith. It's righteousness of faith. It's the faith that Abraham had back in verse two. Or verse three, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as Righteousness. We need to believe God, and when we do, count it as righteous. We need to put our faith in the Lord Jesus, personally trust our souls in eternities upon Jesus, and we are counted righteous in God's sight, justified by faith alone. Now, why can't it depend on the law? Well, that's what he gets to in verses 14 and 15. He says, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. He's saying there is a totally different category between law and faith, between rule-keeping and the grace that God would give in the promise of Jesus. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You hear that? The law brings wrath. He says, here's why it can't depend on rule-keeping. Here is why your argument that I am a good person will send you to hell instead of to heaven. Here is the reason. Because the law does not bring blessing. The law brings wrath. And if we want to take part in the eternal life and the blessing that Jesus would bring, there cannot be the answer back to God, I think I've done pretty good. Do you know who it is who ends up in courtrooms most of the time? Lawbreakers. Now that's not to say everybody who goes on trial is a breaker of the law, but you have to at least be accused of breaking the law, or you don't end up in that defendant seat at all. And, and, and yet we would think to ourselves, well, it's it's by the law. That I'll be justified. I, I'm going to put myself in the defendant seat before God and be found righteous. No, you won't. You know what it said earlier in Romans, back in 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says in Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is death. There are two separate systems here. There is grace, on the one hand, that we need, but there is law, on the other hand, that we were born into. Sometimes the way that we put this is we talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. All of us were born under the covenant of works. What that says is, do this and you will live. It's in the Garden of Eden. Obey perfectly and you will have eternal life. The rules weren't very complicated in the Garden of Eden, but that was the arrangement. Obey perfectly and you will live eternally disobey and you will surely die well they disobeyed and they died we're born under that we inherited that we are sinners by birth and we are born under the covenant of works and that's why it makes so much sense to us this idea i've just got to prove that i'm good enough but you can't you need to be transferred out of that into the covenant of grace the covenant of grace says we can have life in Jesus Christ, free of charge. It says here, the law brings wrath. Well, the wrath of God. Right back in Romans 1.18, do you, do you like the idea of the wrath of God? That's a hard question to answer, isn't it? We love God. We need to love God and everything about God. We need to approve of what God approves we need to disapprove of what God disapproves we need to recognize that the the judge of all the earth will do what is just when we think to ourselves but I can't believe that a good God would send people to hell you don't know what a good God means and you don't know what people are guys God is holy man is sinful it is right for God to eternally punish sin. What it said back in Romans 1.18 is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That wrath of God that it says here that the law brings wrath. The law points out ungodliness, the law points out unrighteousness, and it brings the wrath of God. When you and I, in ourselves, are compared to the the plumb line, the standard of God's law, you've got the first four commandments that have to do with loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've got the last six of the Ten Commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. Not that there's a total distinction between those two things in any way. Sometimes people would say, well, I am a pretty good person. I'm a righteous person because I I obey the laws that say you shall not murder and you, you shall not steal and those things. And yet, somebody who appears righteous to the world, God sees the heart. He says, what about commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. You can't come to God and say, well, I kept some of those later commandments that have to do with not lying and stealing and murdering and stuff. So what does it matter if you were my God or not? Oh, what a horrible thing to say to the judge of all the earth on that last day. Ungodliness brings the wrath of God and he brings out his law to show this is right and unrighteousness, that ungodliness leads to unrighteousness as it laid out in the second half of, verse, of, of Romans chapter 1. That God gave them over to the passions of their flesh. God gave them over to all sorts of sin and depravity. Well, it just leads to more and more judgment. But here's what it says too. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I want to ask you this question. Think about this. Where is there no law? Where is there no law? Some might say, well, if you never heard the law, well, that's where there's no law. Well, the book of Romans already told us, already laid out that that's not the case. Ignorance does not mean that there is no law or no knowledge of the law. i just give you some examples of this. In Romans one thirty-two, this is talking about people who have never heard a word of the Bible in their entire lives. And it says, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. He's saying, look, everybody in the world has a sense of God's law. God has printed it on their hearts. We get it. We can look at the world and see the beauty of creation and know that there is a righteous, holy God who has made it, that we ought to be worshiping him, and yet the heart of man turns away to worship other things. To worship the creation instead of the creator we we know from our conscience that god has a standard for us that's why everybody when you tell them the ten commandments it kind of resonate already because god has printed a conscience on every human heart that has to do with that eternal moral standard that he has for human beings there there is no such thing as a person who has who is outside of the law just because they've never heard the bible before it says in Romans two fourteen through 16, while Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And you know what, even those out in the world who would hear God's law and just completely reject it, say that's man-made You know what they still do? They make up law. They sometimes accept a little bit of of moral standards that we would agree with, and then they make up other moral standards that we would disagree with that go against the Bible, but boy, do they have moral standards. Boy, when they talk about justice, they really mean, yes, you must live up to this or we will bring wrath. Right? These things, by the way, you can't set your... you, you, You cannot set your moral compass by the world. We, we have seen that very plainly, I'd say just over the course of the last 10 years. You know how much we have seen the moral compass of our culture shift just in that decade? I, I'd say 10 years ago, we, we were pre-Me Too, and there was still all this feeling of you can just do whatever you want to with your body, and that's liberating And then all of a sudden, it came out that all of these high-profile men were creepy predators. And you know what they said? Well, it was a different time, which is laughable and also really sad because, guys, they, they they knew they were in sin, but for some reason, the world excused it, and then the world didn't. The world changed its standard. Or you can look at the feminists who were rejecting uh, God's roles of male and female many, many decades ago already and saying, well, there ought to be absolutely no difference between male and female. Well, that was judged righteous by the world at the time, but now many of those are being judged unrighteous because they won't go so far as the newest thing that says, you must say that a woman can become a man and a man can become a woman. And some of those who were uh, judged as righteous are now thrown out. Well, you know what? The whole system of law, it's not going to save you. Whatever your standard is, even if you make up your own standard, you will fall short of it. You will fall short of any standard that there is. If you are in the system of law, you will suffer the wrath of God. We need to be rescued out of it. Here's the answer. Where is there no law? The answer is in the grace of Jesus Christ. In the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, I gotta be careful. I gotta clarify, because I wanna use the words that it uses here, and I also don't wanna make you think That when you come to faith in Jesus, that you can just indulge the passions of the flesh. That's not what we're talking about by saying that there is no law. What we're talking about is this. He says, you need to be in this place where there is no law so that there is no transgression. You need to be rescued out of being under the law, and you need to be brought into the place where you are under grace. You hear that? You were born under the law, but you're not going to make it to eternal life under the law. You must be born again. You must come to Jesus. You must come out from under the law and be under grace. If you are under the law, you will be judged by the law, and you will be found guilty, and you will be condemned for all eternity. If you come to Jesus and trust in him as the one who fulfilled the law and died for our sins and rose from the dead and gives eternal life. You're under grace, and you won't be condemned by the law. You will have the blessing of being an heir of the world together with Abraham. You will be with Christ for all eternity in joy in his presence. You need to be out of that system and into this system. There is, on the one hand, works. On the other hand, there is grace. On the one hand, there is law. On the other hand, there is faith. There is flesh over here. There is the spirit over here. There is wages to be earned over here. And there is a free gift to be received in Jesus. Over in the system of the law, there is death. And in grace, there is life in Jesus Christ. You need to come out of the covenant of works. You need to come into the covenant of grace. You need to not rejoice in what you could offer to God and the good and the religious things that you could bring to him because you will be found wanting according to his perfect standard. You need to rejoice that your name would be written in heaven because of the death of Jesus that would be applied to you by the Holy Spirit. You need to trust in Jesus alone, not to trust in yourself is another way to put it. You need to have the faith of Abraham that saves. Look at verse 16 as we say that. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. There is a difference between a rule and a promise. There is a difference between law and grace. It does not depend on law. It must depend on faith faith by the way not as a work that you boast about to God look at me I brought my faith it's awesome isn't it is my faith good enough God don't turn your faith into law trust in Jesus that's what faith is not to have faith in your faith but to have faith in the person of Jesus Christ to say I will not trust in myself I will trust in what Christ has done for me I will trust in Jesus God needs to be the object of our faith he says that this, this blessing, I'm not going to talk too much about this because this was was kind of what was already covered in the verses that we went over last week, ending in verse 12, where it says that this would be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's offspring there, defined as the people who have the same faith as Abraham in the same God as Abraham. They are Abraham's offspring by faith. It's not about family lineage. It is about having the same faith that Abraham had in the same God. It's not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. But let's look at verse 17. As I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Now this is the point here. Faith is not an abstract thing. Faith is in a concrete actual person. Jesus Christ Faith is in a real, personal God. We need to come to know him, to love him. No longer to love the world and the things of the world and sin and what our flesh could do, but to love this God. And it says, here is the object of Abraham's faith, who must be the object of our faith as well. It is this God, the God in whom he believed, and here's how God's described, God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God gives life to the dead. Well, what does that mean? God gave life to the dead in several ways for Abraham. One of the ways that God gave life to the dead for Abraham is, is what Evan read to us at the beginning of the service out of Genesis 18, where it says that Abraham and Sarah were beyond the years where they could have had a child. Sarah was not just post-menopausal. She was post-post-menopausal. And she laughed. She laughed at this idea that she would have a baby. But you know what? She also came to believe. And Abraham did too. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11. 11, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, You hear that? As good as dead, but trusting in the God who gives life to the dead. From him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Even as he looked at his own body, even as he looked and saw that his wife was well beyond the years of bearing a child, he said, I believe in this God. I believe that he can bring life from what is practically dead already. He can do it. He can fulfill his promise. Abraham also believed in God and demonstrated that as as he knew that God could raise the dead, like Isaac. as, As he had gotten this command from God, go and sacrifice your son, he believed all along. Some people are so horrified by that story because they think that Abraham's intention was to end up with a dead son, But what the Bible tells us is that he believed God who raises the dead so that he knew all along, based on the character of God, he was going to end up with an alive son and not a dead son. He knew that all along. That's what it says in Hebrews 11 as well. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He says he believed in this God. He knew God has said he will do what he will do. God is able to raise the dead. I will not end up with a dead son. God has promised. He also knew about his own eternal life as he knew that God raises the dead, as he put his faith in this God. Hebrews 11 again, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Abraham didn't get to see all of those promises in a temporal way in his life, but he knew that he would have them in eternal life, that he would be raised from the dead. As it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Or here's how Jesus put it, Matthew 22, verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not heard what was said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus said right there, Abraham has eternal life. Even though he has died and been buried, he is alive right now with God. And one day he will be actually raised from the dead. Of course, we have the resurrection of Jesus that is the ultimate proof of this, God who gives life to the dead. We have Jesus who went to death before us and came out alive. That's amazing. We have also the guarantee in Jesus of our coming resurrection. The Bible tells us that there is one day coming, a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The just being those who have been rescued out of their wickedness and born again to faith in Jesus Christ, that we will have a resurrection to eternal life as the rest are raised to eternal condemnation. That resurrection is purchased by God, it is given to us in Jesus. And do you know what? God gives life to the dead right now. And maybe He would even give life to a dead person. As I preach this sermon, not because of me, but because his word is true, and because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, because the Holy Spirit is powerful, because the gospel is, is true and effective. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, the day is coming and is now here when the dead will hear his voice and live. If you hear the voice of Christ and follow him, he has given you eternal life. If you come to faith in Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins but God has given you life, and he has raised you up, and you, even as you sit right here in this old room in Manawan, New Jersey, if your faith is in Jesus, you are raised up and seated in the heavenly places with Christ right now. It's amazing. He gives life to the dead. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. As we put our faith in God, we say here is the character of God, He is able to fulfill his promises because he raises the dead. Even if Jesus doesn't come back before I die, it's okay. He has planned that for my good, according to Romans 8, 28, and he will raise me up one day. And he is this God who calls into existence the things that don't exist, it says. Well, it reminds us so much of when there was nothing but God before the creation of the world. And do you know what God did? He spoke. There was no such thing as light. And he said, let there be light. And it came into existence. Everything that God had planned, he is able to make happen. When we look around and we say, well, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how God will fulfill his promises. He can do it. The way you usually hear this uh, in uh, contemporary Christian music right now is, is just like 10 songs out there that call God a way maker, right? Well, that's because he is the one who's able to call into existence the things that do not exist. When he has said, this is what will happen, he is going to make it happen. He can do it. His purpose will not be thwarted. One of the things he can call into existence for himself is a people for himself. Children for Abraham. As, as, as John the Baptist said, don't say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father because God is able to raise up from these rocks on the side of the Jordan River children for Abraham if he wants to. And here we are, a bunch of rocks raised up. A people that God has made for himself, as it says in Romans nine twenty six. in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. He can make his plans come to pass. He says, let there be light, and there is light. He declares the end from the beginning. He will do what he has said. His promise is sure. And that's part of what faith looks like, to say, yes, the promise in Christ is sure. And I bank my life and my eternity on that promise. I, put, I rest myself in Christ who raises the dead who calls into existence what does not exist, who will carry me through and give me the inheritance that I long for, which is him. I want to know, are you today, are you in the realm of the law or are you in the realm of the promise? Are you still in the realm where you would say, well, I hope I am a good enough person. I hope that based on my life and what I have done and what I think and what I uh, this and this and this, I hope that I will measure up. That's death, that is death, you will not measure up. But there's a promise offered to you, the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you resting in works or are you resting in grace? I wonder, are you, you hoping to make it by measuring up or are you hoping in the one who did measure up, in Christ who fulfilled the requirements of the law in your place, died in your place, rose from the dead? Are you trying to be found good enough or you you looking to be found in christ turn to jesus and live don't try to have the law go to the promise by faith in jesus let's pray lord we thank you for christ who is our righteousness Uh, father as we go through these passages that so clearly lay out the gospel I just am hoping with every, every time that we open up uh, these passages, Lord, I hope this every Sunday, but especially these times, I've been hoping that you would give life to the dead. Uh, Lord, we, we know that you want us to go out and to seek and to save the lost, not only to uh, hope that people will come to our worship services, but God, I just also hope that, that you might give life to the dead even right now whether it's our children, whether it's our parents, whether it is anyone who just happens to have come who needs Christ, I pray that you would transfer them out of the covenant of works and into the covenant of grace by looking to this personal God, looking to Jesus and being saved. Father, I pray for us who have known Christ maybe for a very long time, and have been in your grace for a long time, I pray that you would restore our hearts to fullness of joy as we consider just the the promise and the grace as we beat back the sinful flesh that we feel in our hearts that keeps on making us think that it's all about how well we measure up. Turn us to Jesus. Turn us to the promise. Turn us to the finished work that we receive as a gift of grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand up if you're able and we'll sing our, our final hymn.